Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the July 26th edition of Macro Minutes. Um, We called it this week um, the need for speed. So old school movies like Top Gun, they've been rebooted into a successful sequel, and central banks are uh, full throttle on rate increases and a throwback to their early uh, 1980s inflation fighting mode. Uh, The Bank of Canada, they've surprised with 100 basis points. The ECB surprised with 50 and while the Fed's expected to hike uh, 75 basis points, um, it could be uh, naive to rule out um, a larger move or a surprise this week. Um, so to help us navigate the FOMC this week, we're joined by um, Tom, our U.S. economist, uh, for U.S. Uh, views on the bond market, um, Blake Gwynn. Uh, Peter's going to tell us about the ECB and what looks like an increasingly uh, dismal European growth backdrop. I'm going to discuss uh, central bank surprises, why a recession uh, probably won't surprise anybody, and whether uh, rate cuts in 2023 uh, should be faded. Um, Elsa in FX, uh, she's going to tell us about the link between uh, currencies and commodities, and Lori in equities is going to update us on her um, bullish uh, call on small caps. Um, so over to Tom to kick it off on the uh, FOMC meeting this week. Great. Thanks, Jason. And uh, good morning, everyone. So, um, look, uh, I'll make a few quick comments here. First, uh, on the Fed, you know, look, I I think that this is obviously, I think, a fairly anticipated uh, meeting relative to the outcome. Um, uh, You know, it looks like we're going to get a 75. You know, uh, as, as Jason said, you know, we've been saying for quite some time, you know, we don't think that you can completely rule out 100, but um, in fairness, if they were going to do that, I think they would have probably prepped us a bit more. Um, so I think the odds are incredibly low. There's still some element of odds. Um, so brace yourselves for a 75. Um, you know, I, I think what comes with that, though, um, is, you know, Powell remaining pretty hawkish. I, I, I think it's going to be incredibly complicated for him not to be. <laughs> um, again, look, I think you all know my view. Um, I think there's elements of the economy that are in recession right now. Uh, and... And I think when we get that GDP report later this week, uh, I think it's going to sort of bear that out. And I'll say more about that in a moment. So so I think, you know, Powell has to um, continue to sort of push this idea um, that they're basically full steam ahead. You, you know, we'll obviously be watching closely or listening closely um, for any commentary around what comes next. I think uh, we're probably in line with what a lot of other folks are saying, which is to say a 50 at uh, the September meeting. And then in the November, December meetings, um, you know, right now we have 25s built in. But, but again, as, as we've said, you know, let's see if they're able to get there. Um, just given how some of the data will uh, evolve between now and then, I think that we need to be mindful of sort of the, the mismatch in timing. Again, we feel very comfortable saying that things are slowing down and that by the end of the year, I think we'll be in a very different place from, from a growth perspective. Again, I, I think you can easily make the argument that we're in recession right now, as I wrote, you know, so many times at this point, you know, this is, this is the most anticipated recession that we've, we've ever seen. And so I think that it's something that is going to weigh on the Fed's decision-making process. The problem is they're so close to the inflation problem now. Inflation is going to remain elevated. I mean, I have a decline built in from a month on month perspective for next month, at least at this point, working assumption, as we always have. And even with that, the year in year still remains elevated. So I think the, the, so just from a data reporting perspective, I think it's going to be complicated for the Fed to really back off, particularly anytime soon. Um, watch that GDP report. I know everyone's probably focused on the Fed. I think the GDP report is, is going to be pretty key in terms of getting sort of sentiment in place for the week. I think it's going to look pretty weak. So something to watch. 
and I think that's it for me. I'll pass it back to Jason. Okay, great. Uh, thanks a lot, Tom. Uh, next up is Blake to tell us about the U.S. bond market. Um, so, yeah, just kind of picking up on the uh, FOMC where Tom left off. Um, you know, markets are, as Tom said, I mean, you know, it does look pretty clear that we're going to get 75 basis points tomorrow. Markets are only priced uh, several basis points above that. Um, you know, very clear indication from markets that that's what we're getting. Um, you know, and also, as Tom said, I mean, you know, the Fed did have plenty of chances post-CPI to open up a discussion about 100. Um, you know, they basically punted on that, um, you know, didn't take the bait. Um, this isn't like the last time when we got several inflation prints in the, the kind of blackout period and, and, and that leak where they kind of moved uh, market expectations. The CPI came, you know, uh, uh, with plenty of time for them to kind of pivot if that's what they were looking to do, and they didn't. So it does seem uh, very likely that we get 75 basis points. Um, but without dots and, you know, assuming we get that 75 basis points, you know, most of the post-meeting price action is going to be completely dependent on Powell. Um, and, and most of the focus there is probably going to be on any kind of near-term forward guidance, which, you know, as we've seen in the last few meetings, he's all too willing uh, to provide um, that kind of numerical guidance around the next few meetings. So most of the focus is probably going to be on what he says about September and, and perhaps even November. Uh, right now, September is only showing, you know, about a 30% chance of a 75 basis point hike, uh, still mostly priced for 50 if you go out to November, uh, we're really only showing about a 30% uh, chance of a 50 uh, versus 25. Um, you know, I doubt he'd really explicitly discuss anything much beyond that. Um, you know, he's been pretty hesitant to provide guidance more than a few meetings out or, or kind of discuss any specifics around the terminal rate. Um, you know, and to that point, markets currently have terminal uh, price for December uh, at essentially the 325 to 350 range uh, after trading as high as 4% during the intermediate period. So there's definitely room um, for that to move up. I just don't know that Powell is really going to say uh, much to, to, to directly kind of push on that terminal rate. Again, I think he focuses mostly on kind of the next few meetings, which again, there is some room there uh, where things could move up uh, if that's the way Powell does want to push it. Um, if he says something tomorrow to meaningfully kind of push up uh, that kind of front-end pricing or, or even out to terminal, um, not enti I'm not entirely sure how the long end would really react to that. Given that you know, market, the market response to CPI and other re recent hawkish CB events um, has really been to rally, uh, I wouldn't be surprised even if we did um, you know, get some push up in the, in the front end or even, uh, you know, that kind of long tail risk of, of 100 basis points. I really wouldn't be surprised if the long end actually rallies out of that uh, after kind of the initial knee jerk reaction uh, subsides. Um, for now, it's really just going to be hard for uh, the markets to kind of break this recession minded trading paradigm where, you know, we've basically taken any near term, uh, any additional near term pricing of Fed hikes and translated it as more cuts, more risk of a hard landing in 2023 and beyond and, you know, seeing that really push down lower long end rates. Um, you know, that being said, we are near the bottom end of the recent range in 10. So I think the willingness of the markets to compress that further, if we get a, a you know, a hawkish Fed tomorrow, uh, maybe somewhat, maybe somewhat limited. Um, on the other side of the coin, um, you know, I think there would obviously be a lot of focus on any concerns he highlights about the growth side. Um, you know, that could definitely drive a bit of a dovish response. Um, and, you know, maybe markets are uh, uh, perhaps a little more sensitive to that than they would be to any kind of uh, additional hawkishness. But I doubt those are going to come uh, and assume he maintains essentially the same language that he and Yellen have both been using, um, that, you know, as they look around now, they're not currently seeing any signs of slowdown and kind of refocusing the conversation back on the inflation side. But if we did um, you know, get some kind of uh, uh, concerns or if they signal any kind of concern that they may be shifting back to the growth side, uh, employment side of the mandate, 
um, you know, I think that would obviously be something where we could see the the more dovish reaction, um, the the kind of bullish steepening out of that. Um, you know, that 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 I think is the the flip side of this depression uh, recession minded kind of trading that we've seen on any hawkish news. Um, Lastly, uh, last thing I would say is that, um, you know, just with kind of what we've seen, um, you know, the recent rally in rates, uh, the, you know, the retracement in equities from recent lows and kind of the, the easing in overall broader financial conditions over the last few weeks. Um, if anything, I, I really do expect that they probably want to come out of this on the hawkish side. Again, I don't think they go 100, um, but I think Powell is probably going to try to focus his language uh, to provide some, you know, to kind of bolster that hawkish language, just given that we have seen financial conditions easing in the weeks heading into this meeting. Again, not 100, but, um, you know, any way he can use that qualitative piece of the Q&A uh, to kind of reinforce their hawkishness, I, I assume that that's the direction he's going to be trying to push things. Um, and with, with regards to the market price action coming out of that, um, I do think, you know, there has been just anecdotally, I, I, I think still some modest positioning for that 100 basis point hike, even though that's not anybody's real kind of modal expectation, um, just given the surprises we've had with other central banks in the last few weeks. Um, I do think there may be some slight positions on for that. Um, that kind of stuff would have to get unwound uh, on that 75 delivery. So we may see a slightly dovish reaction to the initial statement before uh, you know, before we actually get Powell speaking, the delivery of that 75, maybe we get some uh, very, very light odds of 100 getting priced out of the market and see that kind of dovish price response as the first, the first leg, at least until Powell starts speaking. Um, and I'll go ahead and leave it there and uh, pass it on to Peter. Okay, great stuff, Blake. Um, DCB, so they surprised last week, but more interesting has been the price action uh, since the meeting. Um, so over to Peter uh, to enlighten us on the um, European situation. So um, actually, um, Jason, what I'm going to do um, is, first of all, I'll probably say something about this um, current gas situation, and I'll speak about the ECB, and I'll give a little bit of a segue into the Bank of England, which is also going to um, have its policy meeting next week. So first of all, uh, one of the reasons, I think, why the market has reacted quite forcefully um, lately to the bullish side over here in Europe, certainly, um, is that we have an ongoing conflict, of course, about gas deliveries. Everyone knows about that. <clears throat> we had dropped um, the gas supply from Russia particularly into Germany through the so-called Nord Stream 1 pipeline down to zero um, over the maintenance period. They switched it back on, um, but already there were sort of indications um, that this wouldn't last the situation. And just last night, um, the Russian side has announced that from Wednesday onwards, they're going to reduce it further uh, to about 20%. So um, we have put a note out um, about two weeks ago where we looked at this situation. And just as a little bit of background, um, the, the Germany uses, is, is particularly used as a storage hub for um, other European nations as well, um, where it's re-exported. And one of the risks, of course, um, is that there's not enough gas coming in, either for Germany or the surrounding neighbors, um, and then gas rationing would have to um, be in enforced. And particularly um, in the current environment, the current regulation in most European countries and EU-wide stipulates that if a rationing um, is put in place, private households are going to be prioritized, which implies that industry um, is sort of the second uh, 
the second order, and that could potentially lead to a quite a significant drop in production and hence GDP. That's why the market is so um, forcefully looking at this. Now, in the note that we did, we, we, we modeled um, what kind of demand cutbacks, sorry, um, usage cutbacks could be put in place, what kind of export cutbacks could be put in place to um, prevent a situation where there's an actual shortage. And that, in my mind, is the absolute drop. It's not necessarily only the price that's clearly negative, but if we get into a situation where there's simply not enough gas going around to fire up industries, that means shutdowns and a very significant drawback in GDP. Um, so far, that doesn't seem to be the base case, but obviously, um, the more the situation or the, the stronger the situation has been enforced from the Russian side, the higher the risk gets. And that obviously has implication on markets. So that was just as a precursor. Now, um, as regards the ECB, as you said, Jason, um, they have surprised the market rather than doing a 25 basis point rate hike, they did a 50 basis point rate hike. And they have um, argued that one of the reasons for that was the higher inflation and inflation expectations. And the other one was that they put in place um, the anti-fragmentation tool um, that, they, um, that they have worked out. Now, they, they have coined this very specifically as being front-loading um, and have said, or Lagarde has said, and that the end point that they want to get to, broadly neutral, without getting drawn into the debate where that level is, um, would not change. Now, what the market has done out of this, which seems quite rational, particularly in light of what I said before of increasing risk um, to GDP through higher energy prices and potential um, shortages of gas in the first place, um, is that the, um, the money market curve has been flattening and the entire um, bond market has been rallying as a consequence. And thus, it seems to be quite paradoxical that even though the ECB surprised, at the same time, the market has been rallying. I think the, the combination of higher gas prices, higher energy prices, potential um, um, supply shortages, as well as the more aggressive central bank in the here and now has led to that situation. We previously had a target of about 1% in 10-year bonds that has been surpassed. We haven't taken profits. We now think that we could go back to probably in the area of about 80, 85 basis points um, and that the market has been pricing out a little bit more of the hikes that it has been, particularly in 2023. Now, last but not least, before I let you go, um, after the Fed is before the Bank of England. Um, the Bank of England has in the, in the past meeting um, said that they would act more forcefully um, if um, the energy price situation does not um, improve. It certainly hasn't improved. Inflation has not improved. And in the last big speech that the governor of the Bank of England in the so-called Mansion House speech gave, he very specifically mentioned a 50 basis point rate hike. So far, they haven't done that. So far, they've only gone in 25 basis point steps. So it seems very likely that when the bank meets um, next week, um, that they would also go 50 basis points. Um, the question is, how is the market going to take that, in particular, how is the market going to steer the uh, how is the bank uh, going to steer the market, if at all, because they're very reticent in that. Um, but when you look at sort of what is implied in the Sonia futures, particularly sort of going forward, um, and we're still sort of priced for a string of further rate hikes. And uh, given what's happening internationally, I think it's quite plausible that we price out a little bit more here as well. And with that, I'll probably pause um, and hand back to you, Jason. Okay. Um, thanks a lot, Peter. Um, so I'm going to discuss uh, three topics. One, central bank surprises. Uh, secondly, uh, why a recession uh, won't surprise anyone. And third, um, this issue of uh, the rate cuts being priced into uh, 2023. So um, on the first topic, um, you know, central banks are clearly in surprise mode. And I think this is exactly uh, the policy prescription that should be followed 
in order to show markets and the average person that they are serious about fighting inflation. So I think you know meeting market expectations just simply doesn't do the trick. And micro forward guidance uh, for each uh, meeting um, is probably not uh, the right uh, kind of approach. Um, the Bank of Canada, ECB, they did have the fortitude uh, to deliver a surprise. Um, the Fed's probably a little bit more sensitive to market pricing. Um, but, you know, I think from an overall perspective, um, you know, kind of no real good reason, um, you know, to kind of opt for um, a smaller move uh, kind of at this meeting. So, you know, the market's giving kind of a mere, you know, 10% chance, 100 basis point move, which is probably the one uh, paying the meeting uh, is uh, worthwhile. Um, the second topic, um, a recession that won't surprise anyone, and this is evident in, um, you know, two separate areas. Uh, the first, uh, when you look at the Google Trends data, it shows that searches for the word recession uh, in the U.S. is even higher than when the U.S. economy was actually in recession in 2008 and 2020. Um, in Canada, searches are on par with what we saw in uh, 2020 and higher than in 2008. So, you know, the ultimate end game of current central bank policy will probably be a recession, um, you know, which we do forecast in the U.S. and Canada um, in 2023. But, you know, that arguably could happen earlier, as, you know, Tom pointed out. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, areas of the economy that are, you know, showing quite a bit of weakness at this point. Um, but if this did happen, you know, it's clearly not going to surprise Wall Street and it's not going to surprise Main Street. Um, second, um, you know, growth fears, um, you know, also visible in how the long end of the curve is behaving. So since the Bank of Canada hiked 100 basis points, uh, 10-year yields are down almost 40 basis points. And uh, since the ECB surprised with their 50 basis points, um, German uh, 10-year yields are down about 25 basis points. Um, you know, all of this is in reaction to the negative growth consequences of higher rates. So, you know, the market's uh, not going to be surprised by a recession either. Um, lastly, um, you know, there's probably a pretty high bar to rate cuts in 2023. Um, you know, the market's uh, currently discounting peak rates around January, you know, give or take, in the U.S. and Canada. And a full cut by July and a full 50 basis points uh, by the end of next year. Um, so there could be some small kind of adjustment cuts uh, from an over tightening scenario, but overall, um, you know, central banks just can't risk uh, easing uh, too early or too much. Um, they obviously got the inflation cycle wrong uh, right now, and um, they probably won't risk uh, getting it wrong again. Um, you know, so when you kind of look at the, um, you know, risk return, risk reward trade offs, you know, they'd probably rather have deflation at this point than missing their inflation targets on the upside. So, you know, if the market does get the pricing, you know, let's say 75 basis points of cuts, um, it's probably worth fading via, um, you know, either the SOFR futures curve or uh, the Fed funds futures curve as far as uh, looking for steepeners uh, in those markets from about uh, January, February, um, you know, as far as uh, the receive leg to either September or December for the uh, pay leg. Um, with that, uh, over to Elsa to enlighten us on the FX market and specifically the uh, currency commodity linkages. So I'm going to talk very briefly about um, the Canadian dollar and crude specifically, though we've done some very similar work looking at the Norwegian kroner and natural gas. Because one of the questions we received a lot from the start of the year was, why isn't the Canadian dollar doing better given the rally in oil? And then on the flip side, we started getting the question, why isn't the Canadian dollar doing worse given the cellophane oil? And I think this stems from the fact that obviously there are a number of confounding factors driving CAD at the moment. And if we focus a little bit on what's been driving it since the start of the year, 
we can see that the reaction function has not been materially different to past experience, but we've had an impact from general risk appetite that's been working in the opposite direction. So we have a fitted framework for looking at CAD. Um, it breaks down movements in dollar CAD according to the kind of typical drivers, so two-year rate differentials, crude, uh, general U.S. dollar direction, and then um, a measure for general risk appetite, which um, we use with the S&P. Um, and you, using that framework, we actually find that the residuals, the kind of unexplained component, is relatively small since the start of the year. Um, when you look at it in that light, uh, dollar CAD has actually followed more or less um, what should have happened. The rally in WTI from around $60 a barrel, just over that, to 122 at the peak, was only worth around 3.5% move lower in dollar CAD. And part of the reason why the move has not been worth more is because a lot of this is down to the crude market being in backwardation and CAD tending to trade more off the back contracts rather than the very front-end contracts. Um, and then alongside of that, the fact that for a while Canada was struggling to respond to the higher crude prices, particularly because of the increase in carbon taxation and a number of things that have been um, weighing on oil and gas capex. So um, we did a piece on this in total effects a couple of weeks ago, just following on from the Bank of Canada's NPR, and you can see that even with the rally in crude, throughout the last six months and then the subsequent sell-off, we've not seen material changes in oil and gas capex um, in the Bank of Canada's own projections. All of that to say that CAD does still remain a commodity currency. Um, if you strip away the effects of other things, it is going to trade on higher oil prices. Um, of course, not else is equal. So typically in a supply-driven higher oil price environment, you tend to see equity softening, and that tends to have the opposite effect on dollar CAD. Where we like CAD most is on the crosses, so long CAD against the Swedish krona, long CAD against the euro, long CAD against sterling are trades that we've been recommending all year, really, and trades that we still like, even given the outperformance that we've seen so far. I'll leave it there and pass back to you. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Elsa. Um, so to conclude uh, today's call, uh, we have Lori uh, from our equities team who's going to tell us why she's gone back to an overweight on small caps, uh, what economic risks uh, she thinks are baked into small caps, and other thoughts on the U.S. equity outlook and positioning through year-end. Uh, so over to you, Lori. So thanks for having me. Um, I always love joining this call, and, 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 you know, I wanted to focus on small caps this morning. I thought it was really timely given a report we put out. Um, but also, you know, what, number one on the economy, um, small caps are a fantastic lens to view uh, the, how equity markets are digesting economic developments. That's something we've known for quite some time. Um, I did cover small caps incidentally back during the financial crisis, um, and it was my exclusive area of focus from 07 to 2014. The other reason I wanted to highlight it today is because we have a very clear, actionable trade idea associated. We want investors who, who take a multi-cap approach in their portfolios and who can go overweight small cap uh, to go back to an overweight. Um, and another way to put that would just be simply this is an area we want to be buying right now. Um, so in terms of the call that we made recently, um, we had basically over the last few weeks um, in our marketing really back in June 
been telling investors that we wanted them to get off their underweights. We wanted them to get back to neutral. And as I was really marketing in June and early July, I found that equity investors were really asking me, what's closest to being de-risked? What should we be buying right now if we have enough defensive exposure in our portfolio? And we want to be getting ready for the rebound. And we found that consistently we were telling people to go to small cap, even over any sector in the S&P 500. Um, so what do we like about small cap right now? I would say, first off, let's go back to small cap 101. Historically, what we see is that recessions are a great time, to, if you're a long-term investor at least, to buy small caps. What we tend to see is that small caps really underperform ahead of the recession, in the early phase of the recession, and then around when markets are trying to find the bottom, we typically see small caps start to outperform large cap while the recession is going on. It's really kind of a mid-recession pivot that you tend to see. So we know if, with all the recession talk that is swirling that we need to have a laser focus on when's the right time to come back in and buy these stocks. So let's look at some of our other indicators. Valuations, if you look at the Russell 2000 forward PE, excluding companies with negative earnings, they typically bottom out in the 11 to 13 times range. And where you were back in mid-June was about 11.3 times. If you look at a relative multiple between small and large or at historic lows, basically as cheap as we've seen since the tech bubble. And we are finding that a lot of small cap investors that we speak with are starting to emphasize that point uh, to their clients if you think about kind of the long only uh, actively managed small cap funds. Positioning is something else that's quite striking in the small cap space now. If you look at the CFTC data on asset manager positioning and Russell 2000 future contracts, it's in deep net short territory where it is actually starting to stabilize but it is well below financial crisis lows, and that's much more bearish positioning than what we see in the big cap space if you look at S&P 500 contracts. Uh, let's also mention earnings. We're in the middle of earnings season right now, and we're seeing a loss of downgrades uh, to earnings expectations in large caps. Small caps have already gotten a lot of that pain out of the way. And when we look at the rate of upward revisions in small cap versus large cap, we find that it's actually starting to flip in small caps' favor. Small caps are acting much more resiliently in terms of their earnings expectations right now. And then the last point I would make on small cap is they do look like they're already baking in substantial deterioration in the economy. If you look at ISM manufacturing, it tends to really move in tandem with the small, large relative trade. Small cap has underperformed dramatically since March of 2001, and the way it's trading versus large cap right now, it looks like it's already baking in a decline in ISM manufacturing to typical troughs. You see something similar if you look at the Russell 2000 year-over-year year against year-over-year year trends in jobless claims. Those two tend to track each other very closely, but small caps have already fallen pretty hard on a year-over-year year basis and are really anticipating a big spike in jobless claims already. Not what we saw in the financial crisis, not those kind of jobless claim spikes, but pretty much every other spike that we've seen outside of that. Um, we also want to point out that small caps historically do start to outperform large caps when unemployment is starting to move up. And I know that sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but it's something we've seen very consistently over time. And typically what it means is that by the time, as Jason said earlier, everybody knows the recession is coming, it's already priced into the small cap part of the market. Um, I would just give you one last thought on small cap, which is it's an easy place to put some exposure on to the U.S., either through the futures market or through an ETF. 
So when I see, you know, sort of talk of recession in Europe continuing to build, not that it's absent in the U.S., but it, generally it does seem to be the idea that Europe is a bit worse off than the U.S., uh, small caps are a way that people can play uh, that geographical divide. Um, and I'll save sort of the commentary, you know, sort of on the other market outlook uh, changes that we made recently for Q&A if we have time, um, but that's really what I wanted to emphasize to you today, that if there is one part of the U.S. equity market I'd be buying right now, it would be the small caps, and that's it for me, Jason. Okay, thank you very much, Lori. Um, so to conclude the call, I just want to remind our listeners of the title of our call today, which was the need for speed, but we know that speed kills. And in this case, it will kill growth, but central banks could very well be uh, reluctant to uh, resuscitate uh, the economy. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.